It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Janice Dean Podcast. Today's guest is a good friend of mine and someone I connected with during the pandemic on social media. While I was raising my voice about what was going on inside New York nursing homes, Jen Say was sounding the alarm about locking our kids out of school. And when I decided to write a book about going up against the odds to try and inspire change called... I Am the Storm, coming out in January. Jen was one of the people I called on to share her story about how she was one of the first whistleblowers about pervasive abuse in gymnastics. After I wrote her chapter about gymnastics, I had to do a part two because of her advocacy regarding school lockdowns and how from the very beginning she knew how harmful keeping our kids out of school would be. Jen has recently written her own book about the experience called Levi's Unbuttoned. The woke mob took my job, but gave me my voice. And it's an eye-opening read about how trying to do the right thing can sometimes bring incredible challenges to yourself and your family. But boy, I am a big fan of hers, and I am in awe of her bravery and her strength. So please welcome my friend, Jennifer Say. Jen, thank you for being on the Janice Dean podcast. Thanks for having me, Janice. It's so good to talk to you. We have to, you know, this isn't the first time we're chatting. You and I started talking because I wrote a book as well called um, I Am the Storm. And we connected because I wanted to talk to you about your advocacy on behalf of USA Gymnastics and what you went through as kind of a whistleblower on the abuse that was happening many years ago. Um, And so that's how we met, because I wanted to talk about your movie, Athlete A. And at the time, we had all these gymnasts, these female gymnasts coming forward uh, about the abuse they endured um, under um, from Larry Nassar. And so that's how our conversation began yeah. was your advocacy on behalf of of gymnasts everywhere and and your story as a young gymnast and the abuse that you endured and how when you came out with your book chalked up you know people were you know upset with you and and that was kind of yeah. like your the beginning of the platform and the work that you have done since then um uh, because you had something even, in some cases, bigger happen during the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. I think when we first spoke, it was before all of, or at least before I got myself into hot water for <laughs> for my COVID uh, views. But yeah, um, I spoke out about the abuses in gymnastics. I wrote a book about that, as you indicated, in 2008. And people were not happy. It seems so crazy now. Um, that because I spoke out about the coaching cruelty, this is how things change, right? I think it's indicative uh, because now it seems nuts that because I talked about the sport being abusive, that people tried to take me down because now everybody knows because of Larry Nasser. And yet that's exactly what happened. I was, you know, called everything from a grifting liar to a crappy gymnast like that has anything to do with it. Um, and everything in between. And then I was redeemed for about 30 seconds when (laughs) Larry Nasser went to prison. Um, And of course, everyone pretended at that point that they'd always stood with me, but I remember differently. Um, But then in 2020, right at the start of the lockdowns, I was outspoken about school closures and the harms to children um, from the prolonged school closures, which we've now seen have actually have absolutely come to pass. Um, But, you know, almost instantly, I was considered unacceptable um, once again, but this time on a much bigger stage, to your point, it wasn't just within the athletic community and the Olympic movement, it was everybody seemingly in the world that was calling me a racist and a murderer. Um, But I didn't, 
I didn't stop. And, you know, we'll talk about why and, and, and why one doesn't stop in the face of unjustness and hypocrisy, even if there's a lot to lose. And I certainly lost a lot. You know, I lost my job. I lost a lot of friends, um, even some family relationships. That's hard. And, you know, my book kind of talks about David and Goliath battles where one person stands up even when he or she doesn't have the backup of others. And you kind of yeah. did that. And I and I see the evolution of of how you stood up very bravely when no one else would. And then when, you know, the Larry Nasser stuff happened and and there was accountability. You know, people are now patting you on the back and saying, yes, we right. were with you. And then all of a sudden. So do you do you think the advocacy that you did on behalf of gymnasts helped you with the advocacy that you did on behalf of kids in schools during a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it definitely did, Janice. I mean, for the first, you know, the first thing I'll say is it connected me to this sort of passion to stand up for children who aren't given a voice. And it sort of connected to me to my own experience as a young athlete who didn't have adults stand up for her. And I wish that I had as I look back on that experience, but no one did. And often children won't. Children want to please the adults around them. And if they are suffering, um, they may not say anything. They likely won't if they feel from adults the pressure to kind of grin and bear it and get through it. But we know our kids suffer during COVID. But the second point I'll make is, you know, in my mind, as I began to stand up for children and push for open schools and the pushback was intense, although that was somewhat surprising to me in the beginning, like I didn't realize how um, kind of religious in nature the fervor would be around kind of lockdowns and COVID policy. And so I was taken aback at how intense the pushback was. But I thought based on my prior experience, I can... I can convince them I can be rational enough and I can be logical enough. And I'm not this like angry person. I'm this nice lady with four kids and I can be convincing and they're just scared right now, but they'll come around. You know, they came around in gymnastics. Granted, it took a decade. Um, I forgot about the timeline, <laughs> um, but they'll, they'll come around. And in fact, you know, that's, that's not what happened and it still hasn't happened. We're close to three years out, but it's certain I, I still believe it will, but it didn't happen in time for me to be able to keep my job. My views were considered too sort of lunatic, too fringe, too dangerous. Um, and so I was pushed out of the company. But I I was able to keep going to your point because it had worked in the past. I just sort of, I guess, lost track of the timeline. It took a lot longer. Um, so we're maybe only a third of the way into this if I if I were to base it on my prior timeline. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your gymnastics career, first of all, because, you know, I, I don't know if a lot of people know that background. We know you as the, you know, the lady that worked for, for Levi's and spoke your mind. Um, but, you know, the lady that got fired. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but you got fired to be able to use your voice, right? I think that that's the most important lesson that we learned from the book. But take me back to your career in gymnastics and, and how that came to be. Yeah, I mean, I was a little girl in the 70s, and it was sort of right after you know, title nine passed and there weren't that many sports opportunities for little girls. You know, it's not like now where there's a soccer club everywhere you turn, there was sort of gymnastics and dance and that was it. But, um, so in 1975, I started gymnastics at the local gym. Um, in 1976, Nadia Comaneci was 14 years old, you know, wowed the world at the Olympics. And I was just taken with her, you know, she was a little girl, um, not so different from me. And I think little girls all across the country were kind of swept up in this gymnastic fever and gymnastic gyms opened all across the country. And um, New Jersey was no exception, which is where I grew up. And I just loved it. I mean, anyone who's ever watched gymnastics, you can tell it looks fun. You're flipping and flying through the air. It's amazing. And I worked really hard and I was very passionate about it. And I loved it. And by the time I was 10 years old, I made my first national team. 
And I kept begging my parents to let me go to a, you know, a better gym so I could move up in the ranks. And so I kept, you know, I moved around a little bit. And by the time I was 14, I went to this gym, moved away from home in Allentown, Pennsylvania, called the Parkettes, which was one of the top three clubs in the country at the time. Um, and at this point, I was still enjoying it. Uh, but it got crazy real fast there. Uh, just incredibly abusive coaching. I trained on many, many horrific injuries, broke both ankles, had broke my femur at the world championships in 1985, was on a starvation diet, weighed many, many times a day, humiliated for my weight on the loudspeaker when I weighed 97 pounds. Um, so it just, you know, I grew I went from loving the sport to just hating every minute of it, but feeling that I would let everyone down around me, all the coaches and my parents, everyone who put so much into me. And I won the national championships in 1986. And so I was sort of seen as a real Olympic hopeful, you know, I mean, almost as a sure thing, but my body and my mind were, falling apart at that point. And I remember thinking the night that I won, I really should walk away now because there's nothing good left for me in this sport. But I didn't because no one has the good sense to walk away on top. And I, I kept going and it just all got really, really bad from there. I was training on a broken ankle. I trained on it for two years. Um, and I just lost all ability to do the sport at a certain point. You know, my mind rejected it. We all learned a little bit about the twisties, I think, from Simone Biles in the last Olympics, who, you know, sort of ejected herself from the competition. Um, I got that. It's not unusual at the end of a gymnast career. You're, it's your mind just saying this is not happening anymore. And I think people forget how dangerous this sport is. We watch these young women on television and they look so perfect, but we landed on our heads every single day. We landed, um, you know, on our faces. We broke our bones. It, if you have a bad day in the gym, it's not a slow time. It's a potentially fatal or life-changing injury. And I just knew it was time if I wanted to save myself to walk away. And I left the sport a month before the Olympic trials in 1988. And that was much to everyone's chagrin, you know, coaches, parents. And so it was a very difficult time. Mm -hmm. Tell me, you know, for parents that get their youngsters in these kinds of sports, what is it about gymnastics that um, that allows this kind of behavior to, to happen? That's a great question. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, Janice. Um, first of all, I think what we're seeing now, it's being exposed in a lot of sports. So I think it is more widespread than gymnastics. I would stand by, though, that I think it's more prevalent and intense in gymnastics. Um, I think part of it is it's a very young person sport. I don't think that's a necessity or required, but it is. And certainly when I was doing it, the belief was you needed this sort of very young, immature body to fly through the air. And that creates all sorts of problems in and of itself, because a lot of the intense, I'll call it dieting, <laughs> but it's more than dieting, is to sort of stave off puberty and retain this immature body because the belief was you couldn't do it after you matured. Um, so that creates this very short window of opportunity, right? If you're fighting off maturity. And so part of the intensity is about that short window of opportunity. If you believe that somebody has a career that can last many, many years, you're not necessarily going to force them to train on a broken bone to get back in time for the next competition. Our belief was you couldn't miss a season. And, you know, if we lost a few along the way, fine, there were more where that came from. And then I think the fact that many of the athletes are just so young because of all these conditions makes them more sort of subject to this kind of cruelty. I, you know, I was a pleaser. I was a 13, 14 year old girl. I think as a young adult, I wouldn't have put up with it in the same way, or I'd like to think I wouldn't have. And so, you know, a lot of that, those conditions, I think, are creating these really damaging and destructive situations. And for whatever reason, this sport is just like 
Janice, it's in the dark ages. You know, I think professional sports have learned that they've spent a lot of money on these athletes and they want their investment. I mean, I don't think they're any more humane, but they want to make good on their investment. So they're not going to push an athlete to return on an injury. They're going to let that athlete heal so that they can play out their contract. Well, in an amateur sport like gymnastics, they don't care. Mm. They honestly don't. They're just, you know, we were chattel. There's more where we came from. There's always some other little girl knocking on the door. So who cares if we lose one? It's just inhumane. And I don't really think it's changed that much, even with the exposure exposure of of Nasser. So what do we do? What do we do as as parents, as, as people who want to make the sport better? Yeah, I think as parents, you know, of a child who is an athlete of uh, in any sport, you know, you owe it to your child to understand the coach's philosophy. Talk to them, watch practices. Do they care about the whole child? Do they care about the child's emotional well-being and their development? Because ultimately, that's what sports should be. It's a tool, right? It's it's not an end unto itself. What percentage of these kids is actually going to be a professional athlete or an Olympian? I mean, it's like less than 1%. Come on. The point is it teaches you resilience. It teaches you to keep trying when things get hard. It teaches you to be part of a team. If it's a team sport, it teaches you that, um, you know, if you can't do something right away, if you work really hard, you'll learn to do it. These are all life skills. That's the point. And you need a coach for your child that believes in that as their coaching philosophy. And it's your obligation as a parent to find a coach that has a coaching philosophy that is not just about being successful in sport, but being successful in life. And you teach your kids and you talk to your kids and you tell them to tell you what is happening. If there is an uncomfortable situation, they need to speak up. They need to say no. They need to come home and tell a parent. I didn't do that. I was silent in the face of it. I felt that it was my obligation to continue and that it was my own weakness that caused my suffering. Um, And so you need to have that relationship with your child where your child will tell you and where your child is empowered to stand up to adults in their life who may not have their best interest at heart. Mm. It's good advice. Stay right there. We'll have more of this story coming up. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. How did you, you know, after you decided to quit, to leave, uh, what did you do after that? I went to college like a normal person, um, not on a college scholarship. I did not want to even apply through the athletic department. I went off to uh, California from New Jersey. Uh, I went to Stanford and I tried to be like a regular student. You know, I mean, I was weird, though. I had spent 10 hours a day in the gym for the last nine or 10 years. Like I didn't have a normal social life as a teenager. So I was figuring things out. It was a difficult time though. You know, I also was really, really tired. Mm. I felt like I'd had this whole career by the time I was 19 and I felt like I was going off to the retirement home. You know, (laughs) meanwhile, other kids are excited to be out in the world and I just wanted to kind of rest and lick my wounds. And I think I, you know, now a therapist would probably call it PTSD. I just, um, you know, my self-esteem couldn't help but be impacted from the cruelty of the training environment. I just didn't have much self-belief. I was a good student, but not a confident one. Um, and so I didn't really find my calling in in college. I just, I did find really good friends. So that was huge because I hadn't really had any. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't find my thing took me a long time to find my thing. I was really struggling. I was depressed and anxious. I didn't sleep well. I had horrible nightmares. Um, And I also was pretty rebellious, I would say, because I needed to kind of learn that, you know, 
it would be okay if I didn't do everything that was expected of me by the adults around me. People would still like me. Um, I could still be a good person and not, you know, just be totally obedient. So I spent my life, you know, my 20s kind of rebelling in that way. And then I graduated college, moved to San Francisco, which I loved because it was like the home of the weirdos. And I felt like a weirdo. I felt embraced by all the weirdos. Um, and I just started working in, in a job I didn't really want. You know, I worked at an advertising agency. I wanted to have a job. I didn't want to ask my parents for help. Things were still quite strained with them because they weren't happy when I quit. Um, and I just ended up, you know, I remember being very reluctant when I took the job. I was like, I don't want to work in corporate America. I want to do something kind of arty. But I didn't have the confidence. Uh, but I liked it, and I worked my way up. And you know, the night I took the job, I remember I said to my roommates, "I hope I'm not doing this in five years. I better not be." And what do you know? Thirty years later, I was still um, doing this. Um, um, there, you know, and I spent. I ended up at Levi's in 1999, and I spent close to 23 years there. Believe it or not, which is really unusual in the world today to spend so long in one place. And so. It all came to an end because I stood up for kids during COVID. And I'll probably never not be sad and mad about that because mm -hmm. for me, Levi's felt like a real community and a real home. But at the end of the day, I sort of violated the mainstream narrative and no one, none of my friends, some of whom I'd known for 20 years, not one person stood with me. Mm -hmm. Not one person defended my right. And Levi's... They love the fact that you were an advocate on behalf of of kids. Yeah, when, when it, it was, was quote, safer, right? When it was you, know? you were you stepping up on behalf of gymnastics and and protecting young girls uh, from predators and abusive coaches. It was fine back then to be yeah an advocate. That yeah, that was fine. I mean, at first, you know, when I first started at Levi's doing that, I wasn't at such a high level. You know, I was a decently high level. I think I was a, one of a gazillion vice presidents. And so, I mean, I didn't ask permission. I wrote the book. I do remember I didn't tell anyone that there was a book coming out. And it wasn't because I was afraid I wouldn't have their support. It, I was afraid they would think I wasn't committed to working at Levi's. Mm. You know, as a woman in corporate America. And my book now is very much about what it is to come up as a woman in corporate America in the 90s and early 2000s. You know, I didn't even have pictures of my kids on my desk. Like I didn't want anyone to think that my focus was in any way not on the work and the job that needed to be done. I, I feared that if they thought I was distracted in any way or had any other aspirations that I would get passed over for promotions. You know, I, I just, I don't know. You can probably, that's how it was in corporate America. You know, you didn't talk about your kids. You didn't talk about being a mom. You didn't talk about personal stuff outside of work. You just were focused on the job to be competitive. And it was interesting because when the book came out, I couldn't hide it because I was on like, Good Morning America. Um, and it had the opposite effect. It was like people just suddenly thought I was this truth teller and I was brave and I was creative. And so it was a moment for me, interestingly, where I said they respected me more. I thought I'm going to bring my whole self to work because I was hiding this piece of it. And now they actually think I'm better. I'm a better leader. I'm a braver, more courageous person. I'm more creative. And so it was a pivot point for me, a moment where I said, I'm just going to be myself at work. I'm going to bring my whole self. I'm going to use my voice. And ultimately, that was the that was the death of me, though. Mm. You know, I did it too much. <laughs> there's sort yeah. of like there's a certain amount you can do that. Um, not the whole amount. So take me back to. It was, you know, 2020 when a lot of us were kind of waking up to, you know, being in lockdown and seeing what was happening to our kids. You know, three almost three years later, we realized that it was the elderly and our kids uh, that got the brunt of the worst of uh, leadership That's in right. some states. Um, you know, for me, it was 
my husband's parents dying in separate elder care facilities and finding out that they were putting thousands of COVID positive patients in there. And then our governor, former governor Cuomo, trying to cover up the numbers. So for me, that's that's how I got involved in advocacy. And for you, it was seeing, you know, kids not going to school and knowing and doing research and saying even the pandemic playbook before pandemic said, yeah, we should not be locking down our children. They need to go back to school. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I should just say that your voice throughout was so meaningful for many of us who, for me personally, um, you know, we were talking about somewhat different issues, but you know, they were aligned in that it was about the cruelty of these policies. These policies were a choice and they were cruel and indecent and the most messed up thing in all of it, to my mind, is these cruel and indecent policies were cheered on by people and they were considered virtuous for endorsing them. And anyone who didn't, who questioned them, was considered evil. That that's what is so stunning about this whole thing. And that's what makes me angry to this day. Um, and I did focus my efforts on school closures. I was alarmed by all of it, you know, I, but I, as a mom of four kids and kids in public school in San Francisco and, and knowing what the, you know, population of public school kids is in San Francisco, you know, 60% are having free and reduced lunch. Like these are low income kids. They weren't home with a, pandemic pod and a parent to help them. They were alone trying to navigate this. They were isolated. It was just wrong. And it, it, the lack of empathy on the part of those screaming, stay home, stay safe, and thinking that they are the good ones for doing this because they can't imagine this child that's home by themselves, maybe six, seven, eight years old. It's just astonishing to me. And then in San Francisco, as probably happened in New York also, the private schools opened yep. in the fall. And I thought, Janice, I thought this is the moment. This is when they're going to have to acknowledge the hypocrisy, right? All my peers sent their kids back to school. They weren't too afraid to do that. I thought this is when they'll see it because it's clearly not right. It's unfair and unequal that private school wealthy kids should go back to school and the kids without resources should stay home. And it didn't prompt any awakening for people it actually deepened the hypocrisy because they didn't it's almost like they didn't want to be exposed right they didn't want to be exposed as the hypocrites that they in fact are and this was all on the heels janice of the summer of 2020 when everyone's screaming every corporate leader in america is screaming about equality and and black lives matter and and yet the black children in public schools who are locked at home with no playgrounds Playgrounds were closed for 10 months in San Francisco. No playgrounds, no school. Those black lives didn't matter, right. apparently. Um, and so it was the hypocrisy of that fall that sort of intensified my, um, you know, using my voice in this way because I just, it was enraging to me. It's still enraging to me. And it sort of exposed this, the big lie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and the big lie being, in, in my case, this sort of corporate wokeism or woke capitalism, as I call it in my in my book, we take these stands or corporations take these stands to seem like good people, but they're just marketing strategies. That's all it is. They want to seem good so they can do all the bad stuff on the side. Yeah. Um, they don't really care about any of these things they say. And maybe I'm the idiot because I thought maybe we did care or maybe I was the only one that did. Um, but now I can't unsee that hypocrisy. And of course, you know, I kept my advocacy to children, but all of it was enraging to me. Um, the vaccine mandates, which now just more and more, well, one, they still exist, but incredibly unjust and discriminatory, especially in light of the fact that they don't stop infection or transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, you know, people got fired from my company for not getting vaccinated. They've not reversed that. 
where was the outrage for these people that got fired? No one cared. Right. The, and the first responders, the, the ones, the nurses, exactly. the first responders that didn't, we didn't have a vaccine and they were going in and risking their lives. And we were banging pots and pans at 7 p.m. every day, thanking them. And then all of a sudden, you know, how many months later they, they get fired because they didn't get the, the vaccine because they were immune already. That's right. I mean, you know, when it comes to the vaccine, which I mostly have stayed somewhat quiet on, or at least did during my time at Levi's, because we had a mandate, they still have a mandate. And I was very conscious of not, um, you know, violating any sort of rules that we had. We had no mandate around kids being in school or not, because there are no kids that work at Levi's. Um, but it, I mean, in my mind, it's it's wrong in and of itself to force a person to take a medicine they don't want regardless it's way wronger <laughs> when it doesn't even work mm. as promised i mean then it's just absurd um but you know i kept my advocacy to children when i did start to speak out on some other things like you probably remember but in the fall of 21 all these doctors were screaming about how they weren't going to treat unvaccinated patients mm -hmm. and i was like this is crazy this is a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. They treat drunk drivers. They treat active shooters. They're not going to treat an unvaccinated person. This is like disgusting and wrong. And so when I spoke about that, um, I really got in a whole heap of trouble for that. And here's the messed up part. Well, there's a lot that's messed up about it. Um, but the conversations, you know, I was told you can't say these things. You can't talk about what I just articulated. You can't talk about the fact that you know, being overweight can contribute to poor health health outcomes from COVID because that's fat phobic. I was told I can't say that. Um, and I was asked to delete things and I did. Behind the scenes, Janice, as I was speaking with the head of HR on this stuff, she told me she agreed with me, yeah. but that I couldn't say it. That's the hypocrisy. Yeah. That you cannot say a true thing because that is not the position of the Democratic Party and the woke left. You can't say a thing that is true. And that is why I wrote the book. And that is why I didn't take their hush money. That is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. It's exactly what you've faced, right? You can't say this thing that Cuomo is doing because he's the hero. Right. Now, we all know that's not true at this point. But when you can't say a true thing, bad stuff happens, you yeah. know, and I, I am, you know, I think it's interesting that this whole story with Sam Bankman Freed is breaking right now. Um, you know, the, the crypto guy mm -hmm. from FTX, it's, it's like woke capitalism writ large, you know, he wore it as a shield. He says it in an interview unwittingly with a with a Vox reporter, he says, you know, wokeness is a game we Westerners play so people like us. Wow. It's a charade. It's a it's a charade. It's a hey, look over here, I'm a good person. I can do all this bad stuff over here. And in his case, the bad stuff was stealing billions of dollars from regular people. Uh, you know, we it not just really rich people, regular people who put their life savings into this thing who lost everything. And that's the danger in this yeah. is that you can't challenge and we lose sight of the truth and all sorts of terrible things, whether it's old folks dying or children being kept out of school or people losing their life savings. This is it's terrible. It's yeah. unacceptable. People and, need to speak up. I mean, I remember when there were protests for Black Lives Matter. And that was okay. That was okay to have thousands right. of people out on the street while the rest of us couldn't have wakes, funerals, or see our loved ones before they died. It was infuriating. And we couldn't That's say right. anything about it because that was okay. That kind of uh, social gathering was okay because it, you know, because, because certain people could do it, but we couldn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if you recall, there were rallies before that about lockdowns. I mean, my husband attended some. Those were not OK. Right. You couldn't protest lockdowns. Those were terribly dangerous. Oh. Those were a public health risk. Um, 
yeah, that, I mean, I had a, a close friend, a very close friend pass away in the summer of 2020 in August. And we could not have a funeral for 20 people outside. Yeah. The yeah. city did not allow that. My son graduated kindergarten, you might, or not kindergarten, sorry, preschool um, in the spring of 2020. And we could not have a preschool graduation outside uh, for, you know, 15 parents and small children. That was not allowed. Right. But Gavin Newsom is at his French laundry with a bunch of people at the height of COVID without any masks on. And that's okay. You know, it's... but why did people not, this is what I'll never understand. Maybe you have more insight than me. I don't, I don't understand how people didn't see it. The the hypocrisy. They of it. did, just, but they couldn't speak out like you and I, we were sh- shunned for raising questions. And, you know, the only place that you could say something was Fox news. And so, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, we have yeah. to, we have to preface this with you are, uh, you are or were or still are a lifelong Democrat. This is not like you are a conservative person and always had these types of views. You were a lifelong Democrat, you know, t- to the point of, you know, I, I, t- extreme left at some points. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I I've said it many times. I supported Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary and um, in the spring of 2020, you know, I was sort of chided for that by um, by folks at work because she was going to destroy businesses. She was too far left. Um, I'm not still a Democrat. I can't unsee the hypocrisy of the policy of the of the party, um, although I'm not a Republican. So I'm an independent yep. at this point or unaffiliated, as they call it in um in Colorado, which is where which is where I live. But I, I I am about principle, not party, and I will not ever buy into a party's orthodoxy ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's blinding. It's it it I, I I'm just not gonna do it. It's almost sort of like religious in nature, um, the sort of demand to adhere to every kind of talking point from the party and to set your brain aside and to not use it and to not think for yourself. And I'm not going to do it. And, you know, the current Democratic Party is it's it's, you know, they're enforcing their policies through private companies and corporations you know we've seen it with twitter and the censorship and the banning and the corporations have become almost enforcement arms of the current democratic government i mean there's a name for that it's called it's called fascism actually it's interesting to me the right is accused of it when the left is really kind of practicing it um but you're right i um i did the unthinkable heretical thing in the spring of 2021 and i appeared on fox with laura ingram um you know i had become part of a group of open schools parents um who i met on twitter of all places Uh, we all found each other very quickly during 2020 and we had tried to get ourselves in the mainstream kind of news uh not that fox isn't mainstream i mean it's the number one news cable news that you can't really say that's not mainstream it's ridiculous um but you know we tried to get on cnn and in the new york times because there were all these stories and headlines about the school closures and how if they opened all the teachers would die and you know they had the same faces the same randy weingarten from the teachers union and they had the same public health leaders saying how the schools couldn't open and when Georgia and Florida opened schools, there were all these hysterical headlines that everybody was going to die, which of course did not happen. Um, but no one goes back and rewrites <laughs> the article or the headline or apologizes. Right. And there were no so, headlines saying, let's put uh, sick patients into nursing homes and people will die. You know, they never said right. that. No, <laughs> no. It. The whole thing is just, it's so crazy. I, I don't know. I'm still trying to make sense of it all, honestly. Um, but in the in the spring of 21, uh, my family and I moved to Colorado, which, um, despite being a democratically led state, was open. Um, 
and the schools were open. And we called the school on a Thursday. They said, sure, you can come on Monday. So we came, we got on a plane and we came. I tweeted about it. It got retweeted by Jake Tapper from CNN and uh, brought the attention of Fox News and Laura Ingram. And they invited me on. She invited me on the show. I consulted with my fellow open schools parents. I was like, this is going to I mean, most of the people in this group with me, the moms were like me, disaffected Democrats. So they were like, oh, geez, that's going <laughs> to that's going to make people mad. But you should do it. So I decided to do it. And while I was already in a heap of trouble at work and had been spoken to many, many times, you know, going on Laura Ingram was kind of the match that lit the whole thing on fire mm. because I had spoken to the enemy, a very bad person who was, this is their thinking, not mine, um, who was a bigot. Therefore, that made me a bigot, you know, and people even acknowledged that nothing I said was problematic, but I said it to her and that Mm. was the problem. Therefore, I could not be trusted any longer. Um, Now, I lasted a full year from then at Levi's, but the intensity of the backlash, I mean, I had to do an apology tour for going on that show. I literally, I had to do a walk of shame in the company. And so when did it start to dawn on you that your days were numbered there? It probably was then. Um, I guess in some part of my brain, I maybe knew from the beginning, but I, like I said, I thought I could be convincing. I don't know. I was like, I had faith in my own ability to influence, you know? Um, but I think when I, the backlash from the Ingram even though I lasted a full year after that, I think that's when I knew I might not make it, you know? I mean, I think it was, yeah, that's when I started kind of trying to figure out how to get my ducks in a row if if I wasn't, you know, able to keep my job. The confusing part though, Janice is, you know, by the summer and the fall of that year, my boss, the CEO, was saying, you could be the next CEO. Mm. He was, you know, he'd never said that to me before. I got promoted in October of 2020 to president. Like, they were endorsing my performance on the job by promoting me. And by the way, all the feedback about this was I was a reputational risk to the company, all this stuff. The business was great. Mm. There were no harms being done. Zero harms to the business were being done. It was all this like panic and fear. And I think, you know, part of it is I was like I said, this is a very, quote unquote, progressive company, left leaning. I was sort of threatening this progressive stance that they very publicly take on all sorts of causes. I was threatening to expose the lie, essentially, by challenging, you know, this 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 one particular policy, which became the policy of the Democratic Party and the, you know, the current day orthodoxy. But I couldn't stop because this pretend stance as social justice warriors while harming all the groups they purport to care about poor children, low income children, black and brown children in public schools. I I couldn't stop. I can't explain it, Jazz. I just couldn't stop, even though everyone was against me and I knew that I could lose my job. He held it out as a possibility. I now, as I look back on that, I think holding out CEO was a way to try to get me to stop, Mm -hmm. you know, because it came with the condition of you could be CEO if you would just stop with all of this um, tweeting and outspokenness and leading of rallies, et cetera. But I didn't, you know, I didn't. And that was that by um, they did. They ended up asking to do a background check on me and my husband, which we should get to, Yep. Um, which was sort of bizarre. But I agreed because I didn't really think I had a choice. Um, I predicted, you know, the background check was financial, criminal and social media. And I said, never. I've never committed a crime. You're not going to find any financial indiscretions, but you're going to find my social media to be a gray area that you will not stand behind and Mm. you'll let me go. 
That's what I said going in. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I've never seen the report. I didn't think to ask to see it. I was too kind of upset in the moment when I was told the report came back and there's no place for you going forward. Mm. But I can imagine that it's not a clear cut thing um, and that it was a quote unquote judgment call by the CEO and the board. And I was just too much trouble. You know, I was disobedient. I didn't stop when they told me to. I didn't uphold um, the lie of these fake progressive stances. I didn't uphold the lie. And that made me dangerous. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. So then you decided to write a piece, which you posted on Substack? I posted it on Barry Weiss's Common Sense Substack. Okay. Yeah. And what was the title of that? Oh, goodness. Why can I not remember? That's okay. <laughs> I remember it was something oh, like, I, you know, I, I turned I, down a million dollars so I could use my voice. Yeah, that's, uh, that's close to it. I walked away from a million dollars so I could keep my voice, which is what I did. I, um, you know, they, they offered me severance that would come with a non-disclosure agreement on the terms of the separation, the terms being, you know, the reason I was let go is because I was outspoken about school closures. I challenged all knowing public health authorities the all-knowing public health authorities who kept the schools closed and the playgrounds closed and masked two-year-olds. Like, yeah, I challenged them. They were wrong. Um, And I didn't want to not be able to talk about it. I thought it was too important. Um, I thought that these issues of censorship um, are incredibly damaging to the, the, the fabric of our country, the first, the spirit of the first amendment and ultimately to truth. I mean, if we can't talk about these things, if we can't debate these issues, where are we? Yeah, We're in the dark, you know, and you, you know, watched it in real time and you just said it a, a couple minutes ago. No one wanted to stand up because they saw what you and I were experiencing. Why would you stand up and say something? But if there wasn't this sort of censorship and demonization and we'd had a real conversation about these policies, I think we would have reached a different conclusion much sooner and opened the schools. And that's the point, Janice, is we have to be able to talk about these things to find truth because when we can't, it's just propaganda. Yeah, That's all it is. It's propaganda. And harmful things will happen, whether it's to our children, to our elderly Or in the case of FTX, you know, the cryptocurrency exchange, employees are too afraid to challenge when they see malfeasance, right? And then, and and criminality, just like with Enron. And, And so it's damaging to the customers who invested in this company and lost everything. It's we have to, so I, the reason I quit the way I did with a very public op-ed, on Barry Weiss's Substack was I wanted to expose the risks of the silencing of debate and dissent. Yeah. Um, I felt it was critical. Uh, it, it, I, I mean, I, not to be too overly dramatic, I felt it was critical to our democracy. Yeah. If, if we do not, and people say all the time, well, it's a private company, you don't have any right to free speech. Yes, I do. I'm a citizen. Yes, the company can do what they want to do. Should they? Yeah. That's the question. Should they? And, you know, I would argue that whether it was formalized or not, companies were acting as arms of the government in enforcing these policies. And that is incredibly dangerous as well. And if you don't stand up now and say something, believe me, At some point, you're going to be on the wrong side of one of these issues, and you too will be enraged like I was, and you too will get canceled. So we got to all stand up now and do it together, even if we don't agree on everything. Mm -hmm. We've got to support each other's right to speak up and say the thing. Yeah. We got to say the thing. (laughs) How do you feel when you're starting to see those articles come out? You know, um, I've talked a lot about we enrolled our kids in Catholic school. 
Um, we're Catholic, but we believed in the public school system. I've talked about this yeah. a lot because I saw the Catholic school in our neighborhood close down one day during the pandemic. Right. They found a way and we right. wanted part of that. So us as parents were like, we we got it. We understood that yeah. it was more important to have my little boy who was going crazy at home, not being able to do yeah. the Zoom thing. It was more important for me to try to enroll him in a school that were doing it and they were doing it safely. So how yeah. do you feel now when you see those articles coming out about those schools that decided to continue on and the parents that did have the money to put them in yeah. and because I do feel ba- I feel terrible I feel terrible because those kids yeah. the young you know the the less fortunate should have been able to take my spot do you know what I'm saying yeah yeah um and the catholic schools I just saw a study perform so well uh, you know they did they did my kids did not loss. miss a beat they are doing just yeah. as well as they did two years ago yeah the the catholic schools I across the country. I mean, there was zero learning loss because they got the kids back in school and they stayed engaged. Um, You know, in a sense, you know, I I continued to choose public, but I had the means and the resources to move my whole family. You know, I moved to Denver from San Francisco. So in a sense, I, I did something similar to you, but I, I kept those other children in mind, which is why I continued to speak out even after it was okay for my kids because they'd gone back to school. Um, Because I wanted all children to have that opportunity. You know, it's, it's just enraging. You you see the headlines now, the learning loss is catastrophic. It is. It's catastrophic. It's catastrophic. It will impact this generation. For the rest of our lives, we haven't seen the end of it. Kids are going to continue to drop out. I don't know if you've seen that chronic absenteeism in San Francisco is at 40 percent. There's some schools in San Francisco. Chronic absenteeism is 90 percent of the student population. (sighs) So those kids are completely disengaged. They're not learning anything. They're going a high percentage are going to drop out. So if we think we aren't going to be living with this for some time. Wake we up. are sorely, we are sorely mistaken, not to mention the mental health impacts that we're seeing. And all of these hypocrites screaming about it's just two weeks or two months or it's two years or at least their kids alive. You know what? You're wrong. Yep. You know, anyone who was screaming that had a pandemic pod or sent their kid, you know, they they had options. They had they had options and many families did not. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, they chose not some people even after they opened, chose not to. But we terrorized these families. Public health terrorized them instead of reassuring them yes. at every turn that kids were at very little risk. And so I don't blame them for being afraid. Yeah. But they they needn't have been afraid. Kids were always at almost zero risk. So it's maddening to see the headlines. It's maddening to see the pleas for amnesty. Um, Yes. Yes. Let's, oh, let's go back and just say we didn't know what was going on and just all be happy that we're, we're here together. That just, I mean. (laughs) We knew. If I knew, I'm just some like normie. I mean, I know how to look at data. You know, I, ran the research group at Levi's, for instance, I was used to looking at numbers, but it's not that hard to read a bar chart. It's not that hard to know that the median age of death was in the 80s in the beginning, and that meant children weren't being harmed. Um, It's not that hard to go back and read the pre-pandemic playbook where it said schools should never close for more than a few weeks, even with a fatality rate much higher than COVID. Um, Educate yourself. Don't just take in the headlines, which, you know, were nothing but fear mongering and panic mm-hmm. and not rooted in reality or truth or data at all. Um, it's maddening. And, you know, there's pleas for amnesty for one side only, you know, right. the idea being, well, the good people who were well-intentioned advocated for all these harmful, terrible policies, but they should be forgiven for being wrong because they're the good people. And you that's you and me, Janice, are the bad people. And you might have been right, but you were right for the wrong reasons. You don't get any forgiveness or amnesty. No one's calling me to offer me my job back. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where's my amnesty? Um, I and and so there's this collective acknowledgement that schools 
were closed for too long and that that was poor policy. But I'm sorry, there needs to be accountability. There does. People may, just like there needs to be accountability for sending um, vulnerable people back to nursing homes. Yeah. This, How many thousands, tens of thousands of people were killed because of this? You mm-hmm. know the numbers. Um, what, I can't really think of any other catastrophic policy where everyone's calling for, oh, let's just forgive and forget. No, people want investigations. They want accountability. Um, and the reason we need accountability is it can never happen again. Exactly. And, and, and we have the same people in charge right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, listen, I'm in the weather business where after every storm, there's an after action review. And it makes me crazy that in this state, they still haven't performed an after action review as to putting 9,000 sick patients into nursing homes. But listen, right. I, I well, in business, we do the same thing, right? Yeah. In business, every product launch, we do a, what did we do well? That's what right. What did we not do well? Because we learn. How, right. Because you want to do it better next time. No one wants to do that. Why? Because people made terrible decisions and we'd have no choice but to hold them accountable. And they made them knowing they knew the people making the decisions knew they knew the data wasn't there to support them, but they created this sort of framework that was and 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 instigated this fervor around this framework that if you didn't want to stay home all the time and lock your kids in your room, you were a bad person. Um, and if we did the analysis, to your point, the, like the weather analysis, We'd have no choice but to hold these people accountable. Correct. And let them go. Yep. They would have no jobs, but no one wants to do that because they were quote unquote well meaning. I don't care how well meaning they are, and I don't actually believe that they were. I think accountability will come. It might not be tomorrow, it might not be in a year. It might take a while. Like you like your first uh advocacy was with the gymnastics. It took a decade. Um and I'm proud of what you. Do you th- what do you think it will look like when it comes? I'm curious what you think that will look like. I want, for me, accountability is finding the origins of where that March 25th order came, where they yeah. shoved COVID positive patients into nursing homes for 46 days because it didn't come from a scientist and it didn't come from a doctor. I believe it came from lobbyists. There was money involved. And until we go to the root of where that all began uh, and find the emails, find the sources, who was Mm. giving this information, you know, and why were our kids locked out of schools? Where was that coming from? Was that science? Was it doctors? Um, so that's where we have to sort of dig and there has to be sort of these, there has to be investigation with subpoenas. There has to, it just can't be these statewide investigations where the governor sees the information coming in and she's in charge of what gets released. It can't be like that. It has to be people put on stands, which means our former governor, you know, being put on a stand in front of a, a jury. That's what has to be done. I agree with that. But okay, so now you have this book and you're telling about this chapter in your life. Um, And I want to talk about your husband because, you know, he (laughs) was your biggest supporter throughout all of this. And, you know, he got into some trouble as well. Yeah. I mean, one of the sort of alarming things in all of this is I got in trouble for things he said. Mm. Um, he was more sort of and is more in life, sort of more aggressive in the way he expresses himself. I have learned to be kind of diplomatic in my <laughs> approach, <laughs> uh, which I think a lot of women in corporate America learn. You know, angry woman doesn't go far. Uh, at least it didn't in 1996 in corporate America. So I have trained a very diplomatic voice Um and you know daniel that's my husband he doesn't have that he didn't he doesn't have a job he's a stay-at-home dad he had no employer to mind he was very outspoken about what he thought about all of this and he was opposed to lockdowns aggressively from the very beginning he was very opposed to vaccine mandates found them to be discriminatory i would agree with that he did not get vaccinated um 
he talked about the harms of vaccination, um, one being myocarditis, which we now know is true. Uh, but he was banned from Twitter for that and has not be let, been let back on yet. Um, so people did not like his views at work. I was forced to answer questions about his views and about the fact that he was unvaccinated. And my answer generally was he doesn't work here. Yeah. Like, what? why does it matter? I, I don't even understand this line of questioning. Um, I, you know, is this the world we want to live in? where you are unemployable if your husband votes for a Republican. I mean, it, this doesn't even make any sense, Janet. <laughs> it's like, but I was, you know, in my apology tour, I was asked about him. You know, basically he was viewed as this terrible, evil person because he thought vaccine mandates were discriminatory. Um, he was right. I, I, you know, and I was not gonna, I was not gonna disavow what he said. You know, I avoided that subject. I was trying to keep my job. I also thought they were wrong. I got vaccinated because I would have lost my job had if to. I didn't. Yep. Yeah, I had no choice. I, um, I had no choice, and that's wrong. And some people at my company chose not to, and they were let go, and that's wrong. And they have not been offered their jobs back as far as I know. And that is also wrong. Well, they still maintain the mandate. So yeah, I got in a lot of trouble for him. Um, you know, that was, again, that kind of signaled to people that I was not on their team, you know, that my husband could be so aggressively against these policies. I must be, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing is what I was told. That's what I must be. I must be on the other side of the bad people. Um, the Republican Fox watchers, because, because, you know, my husband says these things, you know, what you say is kind of okay, maybe we could kind of maybe live with it, not really, but he is just beyond the pale. Um, so you must be banished because of him was kind of how the whole thing started to feel. Um, but I will say, and I write about this at length in the book, you know, his staunchness gave me so much strength yeah his willingness to stand up to policies that are just wrong and um you know he would say to me why do you care what they think mm. why do you care they're the bad ones they're the bad people that are willing to harm children for the sake of their ideology and for the sake of maintaining this fake progressive stance they're the bad ones they're willing to harm children and old people who cares if they like you? Hmm. But I, that's a hard, that's hard for me. Yeah. You know, I don't like, he's a, he doesn't care. He doesn't care who likes him and who doesn't except me. <laughs> I'm the only one he cares if, if I like, him. and it's such a lovely sentiment and I work hard on that every day, but it's still very difficult for me. I get it. To stand in that, you know, yep. to, I want to build bridges. Um, now, I do like being liked, but not at the expense of my principles. Like, you know, I say it's hard for me. And ultimately, obviously, I chose my principles. I couldn't have looked myself in the mirror otherwise. But he helps me because he's always in my corner. He reminds me that it's important, how important it is and gives me the courage, you know, and the strength to do it despite job loss and family riffs and all of it and we're He's awesome and yes <laughs> i agree and, and we we need those we need our spouses to be supportive that way you know because if mm -hmm. not then then who's our biggest cheerleader you know and i think a lot of people realize that um you know you realize it more during times of crises uh who's For sure who's your cheerleader now yeah. where are we now you got the book is it on amazon yeah. It is. We had a little hiccup in the first day. Okay. It was not actually for sale at all, which was super weird. Did you find out why? Amazon. Nope. No explanation. Okay. Um, so you can buy it on Amazon. You can get an ebook or a hardcover. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it direct from the publisher. 
um, at levisunbutton.com or you can get it at your local bookstore. You can get it in all those places. If you like audiobooks, that will be available this week. It's almost done. I'm reading it. Thank you for the tips, Janice, <laughs> that you gave me. I'm reading your own audiobook. Um, so yeah, basically, however you like to read books, digitally, hardcover, audio, you can get it. And I hope people will not just buy it, but actually read it. And, um, you know, the main the main thing I wanted to get across in writing this book is we all have to find the courage to use our voices for the things that we care about. That is the, that is, if that is my fondest hope is that you read it and you feel a little more courageous Um, because, you know, we know this study shows two thirds of Americans feel they can't say what they really think. Imagine, for instance, if all the parents in San Francisco who really thought schools should open had stood with me and come to the rallies and, you know, we would have opened schools. Yeah. Yeah. 70% of voters recalled the school board in San Francisco because they thought they were delinquent in their duties. So they quietly made their voices heard at the ballot box, but were too afraid to do it publicly because of the demonization. They saw what happened to people like me. So really the book is a, is a plea and a exhortation to find your courage and use your voice and stand up against this wokeism and everything else that you see that is untrue and doesn't make any sense. You have to do it. You have to do it. Our our freedoms are literally at stake. Yep. And if we don't care about our kids, then we're in real big trouble. Uh, I mean, if you can't do it for your kid, if you'll sacrifice your child at the altar of this crap, then we're lost. Wow. Yeah. We're Yeah. Then we're really in the dark. Well, I'm so glad uh, that we came together, that we were able to find each other. Uh, I believe that was fate. I think that that was meant to be. And I will continue to stand up for you and your voice uh, because I know you're there for me. And to be continued, my friend, um, congratulations on the book. And I can't wait to see you and give you a big hug again. Uh, uh, and thank you for standing up. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being there for our children from the very beginning. You know, Janice, people like you, I'm so grateful that we met and, you know, watching you continue to push and, you know, stand up in the face of the lies and the injustice gives me strength to do the same. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful also that we found each other. I'm grateful for your ongoing support. I love talking with you. You, you know, you give me mojo. So thank you. (laughs) Right back at you, sister. Thank you, Jen Say, for your courage, your strength, tenacity, and fearlessness. Her book is called Levi's Unbuttoned. The woke mob took my job but gave me my voice. It's available in stores now. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.